0: Welcome to The Game Dev Show. I am your humble host, Luke Greenaway. And this week, I have the pleasure of sitting down with literal wordsmith and narrative director of Horizon Forbidden West, Ben McCaw. Sir, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. And thanks for having
0: me on. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Are you happy with Ben? Do you prefer Benjamin? Ben is great. Fantastic. I have an uncle called Benjamin, and he's (laughs) a a much bigger fan of Ben than he is Benjamin. I just don't like Benji. Oh, Benji. Oh, okay. No, okay. Like that. Is that is that an American? Maybe that's an American thing because, um, yeah, the UK is very much like Whereabouts are you based? Uh, well, I'm in
1: Amsterdam. Uh, oh, you're in Amsterdam? Oh, yeah, with, with Gorilla. But I'm yeah. an American, obviously, from uh, the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I lived for a long time in L.A.
0: How long have you been in Amsterdam?
1: Uh, almost eight years.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. Do you enjoy all of Amsterdam?
1: I do. I mean, it's great. Like, Oh, I see <laughs> what you're saying. No, I should uh, redact. that. Um, I think Amsterdam actually it, its reputation is too focused on those elements and it's really yeah. just a great international city, mm. uh, with great museums and it's really like easy quality play.
0: Yeah. I love Amsterdam. I've only, uh, I've only been once, but being based obviously just across the pond, um, yeah. in the UK, uh, I have a lot of friends who frequently visit Amsterdam and I think one thing they will come back saying, I think is as they've got older as well, they've learned to appreciate Amsterdam as, you know, almost like a cultural center of Europe uh, not just for the recreational activities um, that you can can experience there. The biggest Um,
1: recreational activity I do here is play video games. So (laughs) that's, that's what I do.
0: That's good. That's so good. (laughs) Let's talk about you because I read your masters and I saw it was in screenwriting, which makes complete sense. And I I just want to know, was was this always something you wanted to do? Was it, was that, was writing and was that core to you as you were growing up?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think I always wanted to be a writer. The funny thing is like, I'm from a generation that there was a long period of time where like, we didn't know that game writing existed. Mm. So, you know, I mean, I'm really old school in terms of the games that I grew up with. You know, there were story based games, but it wasn't really something that you thought of as a profession. But of course, uh, I was also a big film fan and I wanted to be like screenwriter. But it wasn't until really the 2000s, like right around 2005, 2007, that I kind of realized, wait a sec, there's an actual job for being a game writer. And it's maybe what I want to do.
0: Yeah. Did you see it leading into games then when you set off on the venture or was it it just happened to be that games naturally became more narrative focused?
1: You know, I played some of the Ultima games, which were actually really narrative focused in a lot of ways. And I was a big fan of early Bioware games and Dungeons and Dragons games. Mm. So I always knew that there were story elements, but it wasn't until games like the first Knights of the Old Republic and Half-Life and some yeah the first bioware games where it was like whoa this is a whole nother level and this is in its own way every bit as complex
0: as screenwriting for film do you have a favorite game from that period mine is planescape torment and it's entirely for obviously the story like which is just incredible and how well written the characters are. But and I often talk about that, but anyone's not always, I always try and drop it in there. But uh, do you have one, one that speaks I out mean, to you the most? For me, it probably is
1: KOTOR because of the mm. that twist in that game. And I don't want to spoil it for people that are only going to play the remake <laughs> or whatever, but it's like that twist is to me really one of the greatest moments in gaming history. That's a historic moment where the story lands so hard. You understand what that entire game is about in that moment that yeah that blew me away and it's probably mm. my
0: all-time favorite i mean it was koto one wasn't it where you had to put your lightsaber together yes and yeah yeah so that the, i think the way that became its own quest rather than just having your lightsaber handed to you was incredibly well done yeah koto was insane like i think it's such such a good game in terms of like your first you know foray into the games industry your first roles were actually in production weren't they they as a producer at Small World and a director of production at Skill Jam. What were these like?
1: Well, first of all, those companies no longer exist, which is funny, I mean, they but they do things that are uh, very much in existence. So I got my degree, I, was, I moved to LA, I was pursuing this sort of dream of being a screenwriter, but I needed to pay the bills. And I looked for things, like I had some little bit of experience in the internet industry, so I managed to get jobs as a producer for those two companies. The one small world, what that was, was a fantasy sports company. And I was really into that. I was really into like NFL football. And uh, so, you know, not the real football. Uh, and um, <laughs> and also into fantasy sports. That was actually kind of a really cool job that that company didn't actually kind of really last. This was sort of during the dot-com boom. Mm-hmm. But I was also just kind of intuitively looking for anything that had to do with games. Mm-hmm. And then Skill Jam was the same way. That was what we call a skill-based gaming Company. So they would do like small little arcade games that you would play in asynchronous multiplayer. So like you would compete for score against other people playing the same game, just not at the same time. And you could win prizes for that. But I will say that at both of those jobs, having uh, the skills of being a producer were enormously helpful to me later on, especially as a lead, because you're constantly thinking about those aspects of just sort of like how are we going to fit this all together who's going to do what how are we going to make this game happen
0: (laughs) yeah of course i was going to say because they must have stayed with you for such a long time but at the same time they seem seem quite far away still from screenwriting at that point did you think am i actually going to become what i wanted to be and what what i studied for or did you feel like is my skill set just naturally going to become much broader within production
1: i was terrified because i was worried that i would never get my big break I mean, that was really what it was. It's the very like LA experience. And what happened was I I had many near misses on the sort of screenwriting side. But then in 2007, a friend of mine hooked me up with someone from Ubisoft. That was the sort of crack in the door. And I kind of went from there. And then at a certain point, and this was around more around 2014, I was more like, I don't even want to do the screenwrite, the film Hollywood scene anymore. And I just want to get fully into gaming. And that's why I wound up going in-house at Guerrilla.
0: I think it's crazy because your um, Ubi, one of your early titles was uh, Prince of Persia, The Forgotten Sands, which was also nominated for several writing awards. I suppose that is a brilliant big break, but it's also a fantastic way of making the most of the opportunity. What was it like working on Prince of Persia?
1: It's a funny story. So it was Amazing. So, like, one of my all-time favorite memories in the video game industry was the first time I was I was freelancing for them. So I went up to Quebec City, where that part of of Ubisoft was based, and I went into the studio. and The um, creative director there was a guy named Mario Lord, amazing guy, and he uh, brought me into this room where we were going to first start talking about the project. and It was just covered with concept art from the game, and that was one of my all-time favorite memories of just starting out because that's awe inspiring. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure everyone at this point has seen video game concept art and how beautiful it is. This was particularly beautiful because uh, one of the themes of that game, the visual themes, was actually all about plants and sort of overgrowth. So there was it was this verdant, kind of crazy, amazing, epic landscape. That was kind of my intro to it. The funny thing that's really weird about that title is that Ubisoft really did some strange things with sort of marketing there because they had the movie coming out, the Jake uh, Gyllenhaal movie. but they were basically producing, I think, four different games at once. So they were producing one for the Wii, one for PS3 and Xbox, one for the DS and one for the PSP. And they were, except for the Xbox PS3, they were all different, but they all had the same title. So when they released (laughs) the games, nobody knew what they were talking about. Like uh, A friend of mine told me you could go to the Amazon reviews for Prince of Persia, The Forgotten Sands, and there'd be like all these comments about the PS3 version, which didn't get some of the great critical response. And then the Wii version that a bunch of us had worked on and they'd be like, I don't understand what you're all talking about. This game is really fun. Like, what do what you what? So it, it, it was this very confusing mess. And I think all of those games failed financially
0: mm. uh,
1: and didn't get the bump from the movie that, that they sort of were hoping for. But in my case, I got very lucky and it uh, was nominated for the WGA award, the Writers Guild of America Video Game Writing Award, which no longer exists, sadly. But uh, I was nominated for that. And that also was how I met a guy named John Gonzalez, who later hired me for Mordor and for Gorilla.
0: I've got to ask, because I've never heard of this before, With because I read about Prince of Persia, The Forgotten Sands, and... The debacle that was multiple titles which are different with the same name. Yeah, um, you actually had to write different scripts and stories for Three different scripts. Each, yeah, for each platform. Like, how was that? How challenging was that? Because did you have to differentiate completely, and how do you actually do that, but also keep it interesting? I mean, you
1: know what really helped was that the games were themselves were so different. So, like mm. the Wii game had a very specific setting in this kind of desert oasis with all this kind of plant life that I was telling you about. The um, PSP game was a side-scroller. And the DS game at that point was really, you know, was sort of like an even more kind of primitive side-scroller. So the design of all the games was just completely different. That really influenced the story for all three of them. When you're working back then in handheld, you just kind of do whatever you can do. There isn't so much storytelling kind of opportunities, especially on the sort of DS one. The Wii U one is like a full AAA-like story that, yeah, it just had a lot of nice things came together. And, and again, got to credit, the creative director on that too, because he was uh, very influential with the story and also just a great partner to work with.
0: Continuing like the Assassin's Creed trend, I also read, like whilst I was talking to you, that you worked on several short films that explored the Assassin's Creed universe. And these were actually cancelled, unfortunately, during an acquisition by Ubi. Was this hard? Because it sounds like it was quite a big undertaking and to have that taken away.
1: It was okay. I mean, when I worked <laughs> at Ubi, I worked on a lot of canceled games. When you're a freelancer, that's something you just kind of have mm. to live with. I think I was just so happy to get the work. <laughs> I was so happy to get the work. And um, <laughs> by the way, in two of those, I don't. I was trying to think of this today. I did three of those shorts. I cannot remember what the third one is, but two of them were super cool. Like One of them was imagining Assassin's Creed as a Western. And one of them was as a kind of like World War II Indiana Jones kind of action sequence. They were really fun. But I will forever be grateful to Ubi for those opportunities. But there was a lot of chaos. They were trying to figure out, they were acquiring that sort of CGI studio. They were trying to still figure out what, this Assassin's Creed 2 hadn't even come out at that point. They were still Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what they had on their hands and how to expand it and what to do with it. And they were also, and this is the Ubisoft thing, right? They were... Juggling many studios like mid lake Montreal, Quebec City, Paris. It's a big thing. And like I was a small fish in that,
0: <laughs> you know, universe. Yeah. I was surprised they didn't include them anyway, right? Like, why not? I don't know why did you find out why they didn't make it? Or they just
1: started over. And I had the exact same experience on Far Cry three, where like I came in, worked on it a little bit, I met a couple of really amazing people. Uh, Lucian Solvan and Josh Mosquietera, just two great guys. And then they just reset. Mm. They just completely reset. And it's nobody's fault. It's just like what the company needs at that time. And they obviously with Far Cry three wound up with a great result. So mm. but it was it was definitely like everything with Ubi was like, I don't know what's gonna happen next.
0: So from Ubi, which sounds like it was incredibly Fun and you obviously learn a lot, but you actually then went to Warner Brothers and you worked on Shadow of Mordor. I, I love massive Lord of the Rings fan, I think they're brilliant. And I love the Middle Earth games, i uh, yeah. huge. We were chatting obviously beforehand, but I'm a massive RTS fan, I love Battle of Middle Earth 1 and 2 yeah. as well. Um, yeah, they should make a third. I know there's a fan made project in the works, but what was it like working on a title set in Middle Earth as a writer? So, first
1: of all, gotta give credit to Warner Brothers and to John Gonzalez who hired me for that project you know and I played a small role in that but it was really cool what was cool about it was a couple of things one was the IP and particularly that take on the IP because what was so great about that game was that it really flipped the script on that IP it had this kind of dark avenger kind of storyline it was set in a kind of place that was really not that well well very well explored but but Had a lot of new stuff to kind of pull out of which was obviously Mordor and it was a great character and just really well conceived. The other thing about it for me that was so cool was John Gonzalez was someone who really developed uh, the nemesis system for that game Mm -hmm. and what I got to do was really get a kind of like close-up look at how that was done and how it was written for and I think that was to me the most exciting part of it which was seeing this incredible procedural machine that they kind of built for that game and how that was created and written. And uh, that was for me probably the coolest part of it.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. I think that is one of the most innovative things that's come out of open world games for the last like decade. Do you know what I'm really surprised about? No one has tried to take the Nemesis engine or the Nemesis feature, if you like, and actually implement it in other games because I feel like it could be, imagine in an Assassin's Creed game, for example, where there are other assassins trying to hunt you down and that conflict escalates continuously. Yeah, do you know why? Do you know, any idea why no one would take that?
1: I mean, my recollection is that Assassin's Creed Odyssey has a kind of version of that. Mm. Uh, but in general, I think you're right. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's something that just fits that version of that IP so well, but isn't quite as uh, flexible for other things. I mean, there was something about the orcs. In the personality that they gave on the, not just on the um, writing side, but on the voice side, on the art side, on the combat side, where they really felt sort of different and distinct, which was like writing alone wasn't gonna do that. Like Mm -hmm. it it needed to have each one of them sort of feel like, you know, their own individual kind of menace. But I uh, suspect, I strongly suspect that in the years to come, we will see more of the nemesis system, either from Warner Brothers in some form or in other games.
0: It makes things feel a lot more real, right? I, I, I don't know. I just think there's an element of the unexpected that's sometimes taken out of games. I think sometimes things can be overly rehearsed to the point where you, you kind of get into a gameplay loop. And I think unpredictability is something that actually makes games incredibly fun. And I think something like uh, the Nemesis system is unpredictability plus like adversity um, keeps you on the edge of your seat with personality. Um, with personality, exactly. Yeah. Which I think I think you're right. I think you need something like walks and you need good writing. Cause you need to feel like, you don't want it to just be like a scaling difficulty. You want to feel like there's almost like a connection between yourself and that nemesis, if you like. So what was it like working on such a popular license? Does it, does it feel empowering or can it be a bit restrictive when it comes to you shaping these characters? You know, I think if you're going in with the job of like conceiving
1: a new element of the IP, I think it can be really, really difficult. My experience mm. with Prince of Persia kind of taught me that. Like when I was a kid, I loved the X-Men. That was sort of like a dream thing. Could I work on something related to the X-Men? But then after the Prince of Persia experience and other experiences I have, what I realized is actually it's potentially a lot more fun to create something new. Because you know when there's a lot of different stakeholders and if you you know you think about like you know some of those X-Men movies, that's that's like a lot of stakeholders. It's sometimes not as fun for the writer. Mortar was an exception to that because it was like the team there had done such a great job of figuring that out already that I sort of came in and was just able to have fun with it. And really I wound up writing like a lot of Orc dialogue <laughs> and they're just fun because there's something about them that's like they're evil and they're greedy, but and they're kind of, sometimes they're kind of stupid, but they can also be very shrewd and very mm-hmm. mean so that you've got all these different flavors. And it was really, that's the best version of working on, IP where you're just working with people that really know what they're doing. And you're just kind of like trying to bring out the best in it.
0: Yeah. Do you have challenges when you're like, not just obviously like big IP, big license titles, but just in general, like, I suppose, could you walk us through your creative process? Cause it'd be really fascinating to know how you stitch all these different elements together.
1: Well, sure. I mean, I mean, it's it's a really big question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I guess I can talk a little
1: bit about horizon. I think horizon probably Mm. provides a better example for that. One of the things that's critically important is a concept that I would call research, but isn't really research in the sense that you think of it like going up and looking something up in a book. It's more like you've got to know your world. Mm-hmm. You've got to have a world, whether it's Middle Earth or whether it's one of your own creation or whether it's the re- some some sliver of the real world. And you have to define it and you have to know it. And you have to know a lot about it, a lot about its history, about It's characters about why things are the way they are in that world. If you do enough of that, that's how you avoid cliché. Anybody can go out and do a game about orcs and elves, right? Anybody can do that. But the specificity required to make it really, really good, that's hard. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did on the Mordor game a lot because it was like that was such a specific slice of it with these specific antagonists in a specific hero. And the other thing you got to look for when you're doing that is conflict. Mm. conflict at every level. So like conflict at the personal level, at the, obviously at the level with like your antagonists, but maybe conflict with the environment, like conflict with, I mean, that's big in a video game, right? Conflict between factions. And then, you know, to make it personal, inner conflict or like conflict between individuals, families, friends. Mm. And you're sort of looking for that at every single level. And if you can kind of find that, chances are you're going to find an interesting story.
0: Because I suppose you're responsible for bringing everything together and doing so much of the writing and the narration. Can you sometimes get into a position of like chicken and the egg? Because where you're creating the lore is you're, you know, writing the script and you're bringing these characters to life. Are you the one that's actually setting the structure and the foundation there for everyone else to build on sometimes?
1: Well, this is the great thing about working at a video game studio, especially one that's mature, that, you know, that really kind of knows what it's doing. Is that you have so many colleagues that are helping with this? So, one of the great pleasures of working at Gorilla is their art team. It's not what you think. So, obviously, there's like concept art and character art and things like that. But let's say at Gorilla, like the art team is going to design a military facility or, or maybe like a dam or something. They're going to research it, draw it, build it exactly how it would work. You know, and it's not just a dam, it's not just a military base. It is a richly imagined, almost physical working model of that thing. And when you have that level of detail and you have access to people that can kind of do that or brainstorming on that level about enemies, about parts of the world, about levels, about characters, it's never just one person doing, it's, it's a sort of collaborative effort. And you know, my role is really to, really, I mean, just to find the kind of human trend or human uh, through line through all that. What makes you feel about it? That's kind of my job.
0: I think it sounds so cool. So, yeah, tell us about Guerrilla. I know we've spoken a bit about Gorilla throughout, but yeah, tell us what, how did it come about? What's, what's it like working at Gorilla?
1: Sure. I mean, it came about because, um, I think I sort of mentioned this earlier, like I really wanted to switch over to full-time focus on video games. I was really tired of LA. A friend and mentor basically was like, why don't you come to Amsterdam? My family was a little dubious, but kind of managed to convince them, and we flew out, and it turned out to be an amazing experience. In terms of what it's like to work there, I mean, it's um, I mean, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> First of all, the physical locale is amazing because you're in the heart of Golden Age Amsterdam, so canals and row houses, and it's physically beautiful. And then it's a really it's a diverse team. I mean, it's about 40% expat and 60% Dutch. So you get people from all over Europe, all over the world, and just obviously highly creative with a real focus on art. And I think that was sort of the challenge that they had with Horizon was that they had made all these kill zone games and they had great gameplay and they had great art, but they were sort of falling a little bit short on the story. And that's why they brought in John Gonzalez and myself to kind of change that culture a little bit and try to hit on all cylinders. That's what we sort of tried to do on Horizon and I think none of us for one second thought that it would be as successful <laughs> as it was. I think we were absolutely terrified uh, because we had sort of switched up everything to do it and uh, it kind of worked out.
0: Yeah. I mean, what's it been like working on and like writing for Horizon Zero Dawn, like the original work? Because it's a brand new IP. I imagine you have... Just like this canvas, like this blank canvas. Like, what was that like?
1: Well, fortunately, it wasn't a blank canvas. It's actually a good analogy because it wasn't. You know, Horizon really started in a lot of ways as a art concept. So if you imagine beautiful nature and then you overlay on top of that, you know, mechanical fauna, right? Like these dinosaurs. And then a tribal hunter, Aloy, that was the art concept. And if you can imagine seeing that, as people do now, of course, they know what it is now. Everyone that looked at that tableau of those three things was like, that's a game. That's a game. I don't know what that game is exactly, but that's a game. I feel it uh, compares favorably to Halo in this regard, because when people saw the ring and they saw Master Chief and they kind of saw, you know, maybe the the vehicles and the, and the enemies, they were like, that's a game. I don't know what it is, but I want to play it. And that was sort of what Horizon had when the writers came on. And then there was just like years of just trying to, well, answer that question of just kind of like, well, how did that world come to be? And that's really the origin of Aloy in, in the story of, of that game. It's just yeah. trying to explain what the hell happens to have those three elements come together.
0: I think you touched upon this earlier, but it's, it's conflict or contrast, right? If you've got nature yeah. and then you've got machine and then you've got tribes people, but with futuristic technology, it's actually like these conflicting cultures, conflicting notions. And I guess that breeds creativity that in turn breeds a game. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. And has it been more challenging working on Forbidden West because it's a direct sequel?
1: Yeah, I gotta be a little careful, but I will say a couple things. I mean, obviously uh, there's been a lot of challenges associated with Forbidden West, like for instance, COVID, right? Like mm. that stuff, yeah, that's been incredibly challenging. Though I will say on the story side, writing a story, executing a story for any game, any large game is incredibly difficult, but it wasn't from scratch because there were a lot of ideas about what the sequel should be based on the first game. So Mm. the first game was not really intended. I mean, we didn't know whether we'd get a sequel, (laughs) but it wasn't really intended to stand alone. Mm. So it raises a bunch of unanswered questions and that was intentional. And those things really make the, the sequel a lot easier.
0: Do you ever look back, though, um, as you work your way through the second game and look at elements of the first game, like characters or the way certain things did play out narratively and think, actually, I, I think we should have done that differently I mean, without giving anything away? or like, No, but I mean, much- the <laughs> thing
1: is, it's like, this is something I think it's, it's difficult to understand about game writing on this scale, is that you're writing, I think we wrote 500,000 words on the first game. I mean, just to give you... A little bit of perspective I and mean, that's like seven or eight novels like maybe more depending on how you count and i think forbidden west is bigger so when you're dealing with that volume yeah absolutely you look at everything you, not everything you look at a lot of things and you say i wish we'd done this differently i wish we'd had more time for that i wish we could have had whatever right like it's impossible not to and especially if you just devote so much time and energy to it what you just hope for is that it resonates with the audience and that's where we just hit you know, whatever you want to call it, the, the mother load for for the first game because it's just so wonderful how people connected to it. And I'm not just talking about the story, obviously, right? Because there's mm-hmm. people that only want to play that game to kill Thunder Jaws and that's totally fine, right? But there's also people that you know, you know, one of the things that's just so incredible about that game is Photomo, and how like people love to this day. I mean, the game came out what five years ago, and people. Spend a lot of time in doing virtual photography for, based on that game. I mean, that's amazing.
0: It is absolutely stunning. It looks incredible on the PS5 as well. It just looks ridiculous. You, have you found in your journey there like a, a gorilla? Because when you joined, you were lead writer, is that correct? And then you worked senior i started of senior senior writer of sort senior yeah. writer and then a lead writer, now the narrative director. I suppose, have your challenges expanded and how's your journey changed and your your changed in that time? Are you further apart from like character creation and development that you were before, or yeah. Can you talk us through that?
1: Sure. I mean, so you have to understand that when I arrived there, I had been a freelancer and this is really important because I was was going in house really for the first time. And Mm. I'd also been in LA for a long time working kind of alone. I mean, like, of course I, I had contacts and there were producers and managers and all that stuff. So I get to Gorilla in 2014 and it's like, this is a team. And I just loved it. I want to hang out with everybody. I want to know (laughs) what you do. Let's figure this whole thing out. And like, that was amazing. And I think that'll always be a a highlight for me. It's just that sort of first year or two of just like, this is incredible. Since then, I still get to work with that team and and the team changes and evolves. I think I do sometimes miss the like kind of hands-on, like, get together with, like, a quest designer and kind of really, like, hammer out Mm -hmm. the very nitty-gritty specifics of of this or that quest. But I still do a lot of the same things. I think what's changed more is, like, I'm trying to manage this kind of, like, universe of, like... Which has a lot going on, you know? It's like there's Forbidden West, but there's also, for instance, like, comic books and things like that that are shooting out of it. And it's like I'm trying to make it all kind of cohesive. I'm trying to make sure that, you know, if, if someone reads issue three of of the comic book and plays this quest from horizon zero dawn and then plays that quest from forbidden west that it's all the same you know it doesn't trip on itself or (laughs) or whatever and that also of course that you get emotionally attached to it wherever possible
0: yeah that must be so hard as it as the universe expands i always wonder like that with all games, to be honest, but how the law doesn't, I mean, you read about it with Marvel, I don't know if you're a big Marvel fan, but with the Marvel universe and how naturally when you have like narrative arcs and there are so many running in like equilibrium with one another, there are going to be voids and there are going to be loopholes and things that just don't make sense. I think one of the best cases in point with that was with Thor. In the first Thor, you see the infinity gauntlet in the trophy room. And actually, when you first see it on Thanos, it's on the other hand. And they managed to get round this hole by, in, I think it's Thor Ragnarok, Hela, when she walks through the trophy room, she pushes over the gauntlet and says it's a fake. And it's it's quite a clever piece of writing to actually bring that loop to a close. Do you have a process in place to manage that level? Because Horizon Zero Dawn seems to be just expanding and expanding its lore.
1: Well, so first of all, we're going to make mistakes like that. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, it. I don't know what they are, but they're there. So so apologies in advance, right? Like we're, we're making those mistakes. So you're a Lord of the Rings fan. Let me try to put this in a way that you, I think you'll relate to. When mm-hmm. I was a kid, I had this book. It was called The Token Bestiary. And it was like, kind of like an encyclopedia of token. And mm-hmm. I read it. I just, I wore it out. I read it so much. And at some point, I also got a copy of The Silmarillion In the sort of like appendices of that. They have timelines kind of explain. The and then also there are editions, I think, or maybe all editions of the Lord of the Rings that have all of this ancillary material about where Gandalf was, you know, at X point before this part of the story happened. And um, I love that stuff. I loved it. I, there was something about this idea that this universe is bigger than what's just in the books. And Oh, what, what, what happened? We, where was it? One of the things that still bothers me to this day is this idea that in, in Tokyo, there's a story about how Gandalf showed up one day on a boat to Middle Earth, and he had two buddies with him, Saruman and Radagast, and there were two more. And nobody knows who they were. It just <laughs> kills me that I don't know who they were. No one's ever, like, <laughs> fleshed this out. I actually, that somebody should make that video game of those mm. two other wizards and what happened to them. But anyway, the point is, that's how I feel about Horizon. I'm interested in every little detail And we do our best to keep track of it all in documents that are kind of a lot like what I'm talking about that Tolkien did, right? I mean, I'm not saying we're doing it as well as he did, but timelines, faction profiles, outlines, whatever it is, right? And the detail-orientedness of that, the like, what happened on this month in the Horizon (laughs) universe? I love that stuff. I love that stuff. It's something I hope that we can kind of share with the audience in some form someday. It's like how do we do that? What are we thinking about that
0: mm, like maybe like games that are part of the universe but actually not Aloy's story, maybe or things like I don't know, like just things that fill sure. in those plot holes. Like you said with um Tolkien and that like, you know, the two people that Gandalf obviously came with, which were never spoken about again. It's interesting. I, I was speaking to we had um Amber Lajuri on, she was actually talking about her time beforehand at Eidos, and when she was working on Tomb Raider, and they actually had someone whose entire role was basically to update everyone on the lore to make sure, because there were so many two, different Tomb Raider games over such a long period. Even though it's not as narratively led, it is kind of now, and they want to make sure that things are quite succinct, and that was all they did was they just filled in all the teams. It's actually quite an expansive position because. It affects art, it affects narration, it affects sound, it, it can affect everything. It's incredible how complex these game worlds have become because the narration and the lore and the story is so expansive now.
1: Well, one um, of the things that we have too, which makes it even weirder, is like, you know, obviously of Aloy and everything that happens in the tribal world. But we have this like super, super detailed history of the 21st century, right? Mm-hmm. Of like how all the bad things happened. That led to, you know, Zero Dawn and all that stuff. So that's pretty detailed too. I mean, it gets more detailed with every uh, everything we add to the story, right?
0: So. Yeah. There's gonna there's gonna be things that uh, we find out in Forbidden West that are gonna obviously hope you know, we won't go any further on this, this room. I wish um, I could say more. <laughs> so on this subject of like these ever expanding worlds and IPs, like How specifically has narration changed in video games for you since Prince of Persia to now, basically? Well,
1: I'm not gonna use Prince of Persia as an example because that was such a beautiful example of collaboration. But in a broader Mm. sense, game writing just has a bigger seat at the table. So Mm. there is an industry-wide acknowledgement that even if you're not making a completely story-based game, that you need to have writers and narrative designers front and center as these games are being mapped out. And the earlier you do it and the more uh, collaboration you have with them, the better the material is. I know that there are plenty of games that are heavily design-based, but I mean, look at League of Legends. So that went from, I mean, one of the most successful games in the world, Mm -hmm. that went from having, with being a kind of incomprehensible mix of sort of different fantasy universes that are sort of all in the same universe, to something that they've built now because they realized this exact thing that I'm talking about into a much more coherent kind of world where now they have this like hit Netflix series based on it, right? It really pays to have the story people in the room from the get-go. And I think most studios understand this. I mean, some like Santa Monica studio or Naughty Dog, where it's like the story people practically are like the creative directors and things like that but also to all kinds of other games. And even a game like Apex Legends, you know, which is obviously a design heavy experience. It's, you know, it doesn't have a lot of actual narrative design in it. Even them, they realize how much people love those characters and they sort of want more story out of those characters. So that's the difference. It's, it used to be that games are about design, they're about combat, they're about art, but they're not really stories. And you can just kind of tack that on later. Now it's like, no, you, not when you're making a AAA game with a story where you have hundreds of people and potentially tens or hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. That just doesn't make mm-hmm. sense because what you're going to get, gamers will know it's an incoherent experience. Like it, it's yeah. like, the what is the term? Ludo narrative dissonance, right? It doesn't add up. And gamers want, not all, not all gamers, but a lot of gamers want a cohesive world.
0: I want games, and I think in some ways they get in there, but like, you know, Breaking Bad, well, we, we have that level of character development with Walter yeah. White. And you have this love-hate relationship with someone. I want I want to fill that with the character I'm playing. And I think we will definitely get there because, like you said, like I love that narration is now at the table, right? It has a seat at the table. Someone on the team actually asked me to talk about this and ask you sure. about this. It's about the underworld of narration. And story writing and its side quests. They're not, not as well written often as like the main story, because maybe it's there's an acceptance that's where you have to compromise. And I think, well, that's my assumption, but is that true? Is, is there this truth to look with big open worlds? There, there has to be a compromise somewhere. And often with narration, that is in the actual writing of the side story and the side quests. Absolutely. I mean,
1: like, <laughs> what can it. I say? I mean, <laughs> Look, you're you're talking about you're talking about a situation where you've got just an enormous world with an enormous amount of content, and I think if you really looked at it, I'm not as erudite enough to do this, but if you looked at side quests in a different way, if you didn't concentrate on the writing, but if you concentrated on, for instance, how well the combat encounters are set up, or mm-hmm. how well the environment is arted up, or the sound design, you would find all the same which is like less, right? Less, Mm. less concentration on the writing, less concentration on the combat, less concentration on the art and less concentration on the audio. Now, does anyone want it to be that way? Of course not. But um, when you're dealing with a game that has 75 quests or whatever, 50, 75 quests, you run out of time. I mean, it's really just Mm. that simple. Now, we've looked at this problem and so have many other studios and tried to, to fix it. We've come up with some Potential solutions. And I hope that Forbidden West sort of demonstrates some of those. I can't, I can't say more about it, but it's something that's sort of on our radar and it's something that we've tried to address.
0: Mm, okay. I think your example of God of War, what you mentioned earlier, do you think maybe games, because I look at God of War, I look at The Last of Us, the Last of Us 2, Hades, I look at like, say, Breath of the Wild kind of bucks this trend, but many of the game of the years from the last like five, six years. They're quite tight linear worlds, right? Now they just are. Like, and I think they have to be to maintain, like you said, that level of quality. Do you think maybe that's somewhere that we game design should be focusing a bit more on? Because I know you obviously you've got like your big expansive worlds which are brilliant, but do you think maybe we're going to see this trend where we actually focus on maybe like tighter, smaller worlds to enhance the narrative?
1: I mean, I think if you look at the way. So this is me stepping out of my lane for a second, okay? Because I'm, I'm just the writer guy, right? <laughs> but if you think about the way the industry is going and the amount of time and money that's spent on a game and the risk involved, the math sort of trends towards at some point, someone's going to try to make smaller games or more episodic games or games that aren't, you know, that don't take five years and X number of gazillions of dollars to make. There'll still be open world games and they'll still be huge games. The, the proposition of building something like as big as Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which I'm not sure if this is actually true, but to me that feels like the biggest open world I've ever played. It's just so daunting in terms of sort of time and money and effort. And if you can focus your experience, the player's experience a little bit more, you can deliver a higher level of quality. I mean, it's just a pure equation of time, money, people hours, you know, all that stuff. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Do you think it's easier to find people to create open worlds rather than writers to create you know more linear because i suppose a lot of it has to be like we talk about the, these games that are more linear compared to open worlds and obviously a lot of it is mass you need a lot more developers because you've got a lot more going on you probably have completely different infrastructure you have different engines at play do you think that's easier to find though because it's just naturally the get like you said the games industry is naturally more focused on design than it is actually to find like writers like yourself like top tier writers to come in and actually design this tighter narrative experience. And that's why there is a bigger focus on open world games.
1: I think that talent at every level of the video game industry is really hard to find. I mean, Mm. Guerrilla has got an amazing collection of developers and so do many other studios. Groups of amazing, creative brothers and sisters of arms all over the world. And I love them all, right? Because they're all doing like amazing work. But Mm -hmm. it is very difficult just to find the right people because you you need particular skill sets. You Mm -hmm. also need uh, team fit because, you know, at the end of the day, the designer that really wants to work on a MOBA isn't going to enjoy working on an open world game in the same way. So there's so many different factors. And whether they just like the game or like the vision for the game or, or it can be just like the studio culture or like the place, the city, like there's so many factors. So like, if you also look at what's going on in the industry, there's so much expansion, so many big money players coming in and buying up studios, creating new studios. It's just going to get tougher and tougher. And I feel blessed to, to be at a place like Gorilla where they've, they've got a handle on this, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. hundred um, percent.
1: In terms of like what types of developers, you know, I think, Open world games obviously sort of were like very popular and trending very high for a while. That that sort of genre and like all things that will have ups and downs, you know, there'll be a, a decline, I think, in how many of them there are and, and how many of them are successful. And then there'll be a revival. It's just one of those things. It goes up and down with the industry, just like we were discussing earlier, Age of Empires, right? Like, yeah. it's so great to have it back. It's so yeah. great to have it back. But it's been a long period where that hasn't been the focus
0: of the industry at all you know it makes me very happy that that age of empires is is the classic rts is bad because like it feels weird to be playing one which has been released recently um but which is basically the same game that it was 15 years ago but like
1: it's very pretty
0: very pretty (laughs) very 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 pretty and um I think it's fascinating, like, the ebb and flow of the games industry. Yeah, we obviously touching upon it earlier, but, like, Breath of the Wild, um, obviously Zelda's been open world for quite a while now, but Breath of the Wild's actually a lot more focused on survival, yeah. if anything. Like, you know, and it has many influences, which, like, crafting and things like this, that um, have obviously come from other games. And I think it's going to be interesting to see, actually, linear games, how they would take on, open world, like Dark Souls. Um, I think it's a fantastic example of this. Um, well, we're about to find Elmering. out. Yeah. Yeah, I, know. Yeah. I can't, I can't <laughs> wait, although I'm not going to spend £400 on a beta key from eBay. But um, like, I think uh, I'm really interested to see how that adaptation plays out because it's, it's weird. It's got a completely different challenge where the law has been quite obscure um, yeah. in some ways. And no, I think on purpose, obviously, I think they, they want you to fill in the gaps. And I was going to ask you about this. Where do you see narration going in games? How do you think it's going to evolve? I mean, it's going to evolve in a couple of different
1: directions, but here's a couple, okay? So, I mean, one of them obviously has to do with VR. You know, I mean, it's been in the news. The metaverse has been in (laughs) the the news quite a lot. Development may be slow, but at some point it's going to hit a kind of critical mass where it'll be more, I I wouldn't say standard, but sort of more like uh, mainstream. And when that happens, that's going to change storytelling because storytelling is different in VR. Speaking to colleagues around the industry, you know, it's very hard to focus the player's attention in VR the way you would do it in uh, a game like Zero Dawn because of like cinematic. You can't really do a cinematic in VR because you can just kind of turn your head away. Right? <laughs> so that's one area. Another area I think has to do with, we are talking about the Nemesis system, but I mean, there are gonna be more and more attempts at procedural driven stories. It's hard to predict exactly which ones will be successful. It's also hard to predict how much sort of AI will come into this, but I do think you're gonna see some really interesting and exciting new ways of telling stories in a procedural way. Now, personally, I think it's hard to generate the sort of emotional interest in a procedural story the way you know a game like The Last of Us Part Two does. Just so purely authored experience and that's sort of designed to generate emotion. But people are going to figure out some cool tricks like mm-hmm. the nemesis system. They're going to really feed the desire for content and, and the desire for a kind of narrative, not an authored narrative, but it's kind of narrative that people really like. So mm-hmm. I think those are two directions that industry is going to continue to really dig into. But I still think that, you know, uh, studios like Santa Monica, Naughty Dog and Gorilla and others are going to be pursuing, you know, scripted, story-driven, authored stories. And I, I think that's great because, I mean, obviously it's sort of where my taste lies. And, you know, I want to go out and play the next, I want to play God of War Ragnarok. I want to play uh, whatever Naughty Dog comes up with next. I want to play Remedy. I want to play the next Control game. And that game just completely blew me away, you know. Yeah. So those types of sort of story-based games are
0: going to still be there. Yeah, I hope so as well, because I feel like, I I don't think there should be innovation for the sake of innovation. I think sometimes that's where you see tech fail, right? Can I just say one thing about that though? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Here's what
1: I love about video games, right? And this is something that the metaverse cannot alter, in fact, can Mm -hmm. only enhance. And this sort of relates to this sort of conversation about, is gaming art, right? Or video games art. But it's like, inside a video game, you can read a book. Inside a video game, you can look at a painting, you can watch a film, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't think that these things should replace the actual non-virtual versions of those things. But the possibilities of this space are just so enormous. It could very well be that you find yourself in the future in a virtual world where, like, you're reading a book on an alien planet. That sounds pretty cool to me. I'll check that out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I want to see how it enhances it, you know, but right, I'm the kind of guy who goes to books like, you know, Ben Boulders Gate just read everything like you know, you're so good. you're you're now my favorite
1: gamer you're the you're the target audience <laughs>
0: but yes I, but, it's, but i think it just that's where you get the emotional attachment to because everything feels more real right like you i could talk about this forever i've got two more questions like brief questions just to wrap us up and we're talking about the you know the metaverse and um where narration's going where the games industry's going what about yourself right like i know you mentioned you know always wanted to work on like an x-men x-men you loved x-men growing up like is that it would that be the dream for you like working on the x-men ip like an x-men licensed title um
1: no i yeah. don't i don't think so i have not exhausted by any wild stretch the horizon universe i mm-hmm. am where i want to be am i looking forward to this wolverine game that they're making over at uh, i think isn't it insomniac yeah yes yes i am they did such an amazing job with spider-man they're going to do an amazing job on that. I was so excited when I saw that trailer. But I'll leave the X Men to the experts at this point. I think um, I, I kind of just want to be the, the Horizon expert.
0: That's fantastic. Okay, okay. But if they if they called you up and Guerrilla were like, "Look, it's okay. You can have like a three month contract." You know, at Insomniac. I mean, you know, you guys are all Sony um, in some shape. Would you? Would you be tempted to? Have a three month sabbatical?
1: (laughs) No, I wouldn't, but I'll tell you what I would do in a heartbeat, I would love to do a little tour of the West Coast where I went to visit Naughty Dog, Santa Monica, Insomniac. Mm. That would be, Bend, that would Mm. be amazing. Absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah, I think you guys should do it. You guys, uh, yeah, I think Sony's incredibly fortunate to have such creative studios like that, so. Okay, final question. It's just a brief one, really. It's uh, how would you summarize your career in one sentence? To give you a bit of inspiration, like everyone says some, some, something different. Lorne Lanning, like the creator of the odd World games, he said, brutally enlightening. Um, but everyone has like a different take on this, so. I love that. Yeah. I'll, I got mine,
1: mine's easy. Uh,
0: okay.
1: Work in progress.
0: Oh, that's Three great. Words. That's so, really cool.
1: And I think this is especially true. If this is, if I could give advice to the young'uns, This is especially true uh, for writers, which is that like, you've never mastered the craft. You gotta keep learning. You gotta keep trying to understand what it is that you're trying to accomplish and what you're doing wrong and what you can learn from. So my hope is to not kind of lose that spirit. And I think that's, what's also great about video games, which is like, Mm -hmm. it's an evolving medium. So you can't rest on your laurels. It's always changing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, work in progress.
0: Fantastic, Ben. (laughs) <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, it's been brilliant. I think, do you know what's hard is we'll have to have you back on. Like, Have me we'll back have on. on. I'll, I'll come back. Because like, we'll like, there's so many more questions. And uh, when I was uh, telling the team that obviously you are coming on, I've got so many questions that they've asked me to ask you, which I haven't. And we've lost unfortunately run out of time. But it's been the greatest pleasure. Uh, it really has. Well, it's
1: been a pleasure. And what I would say is have me back after Forbidden West and then we can really talk. Uh,
0: yeah, we can really talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would say, uh, obviously, all the comments and opinions you've heard today are those of ben and my own and do not represent our employers and if you would like to reach out to us you can do at game show at ptw.com until next time game over